The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Yellow, Mayor's office. Yes. Do you have an ETA? Why not? All right. Where are you going to get your book signed? I'm just going to do the first blank open page. Oh, I do the title page usually. Oh, really? Yeah. Mayor's office, you just find out. Find it out. Well, Ma'am, how long, do you, how long do you think it'll be? Just want to get this signed, that's all. Well, he, he has the senior citizens in there, you know, and they talk kind of slow. Ma'am, so all we want is just a quick signature, a quick hello, and then we're out yes, of here. Yes, but, but Ma'am, all we want is just a quick signature, and then we're out of here, I promise. Well, I'm going to tell you the truth. The mayor happens to have a draining cyst on his cheek, and it's really kind of ugly, and he doesn't want to be seen that way. You know what? I don't care about a draining cyst. Everyone has stuff like that. He's a vain man. Okay, I feel like if he knew we were here, he would just run out and say, Hey, Fred. Hey, Carrie. <laughs> yes. By the wharf? The wharf? Nothing. Well, f*** it. You got some lot, lot of drama going on, huh? There's a lot going on. There is a lot, lot, lot going on. You can just let him know that we're here. Gosh, he's so amped up. He's running full speed. You know... Why don't we just go in there? I don't know what she's doing. Okay, let's go. Hey, Mr. Mayor? How are you? Can you just sign our books real quick? Oh, sure, I'll sign your book. Uh, just, uh, but, uh, Ma'am. Ma'am, what, what, what are you doing? What's going on? The mayor is missing. Well, when's the last time you saw him? Two days ago. We gotta go find him. Yeah, let's go. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, September 18th, 2014. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Al Gretzky. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, it's not right wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color. Color it to black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright And welcome to our show today where 519-661-3600 is the number you can always call to reach us or write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. And today we're going to try to create an informed electorate, Al Gretzky and I, as we talk about municipal politics, everything from BIAs to the ombudsman to the mayoralty race to the King's Mills deal. And we're going to wrap up the show later on today with asking the question, is the United Nations irrelevant. But first, I guess we're going to start on the can't get elected theme. Is that right, Yeah, That's about what we're going to do here. Yeah. <laughs> so let me get right into it. Uh, at one time, there were a uh, limited number of individuals running for office at city government. Mostly those individuals were prominent in business and service. Uh, this was especially true for the seat of mayor. Uh, three or four would normally be the max, and they would all be recognizable, if not by picture, at least by name. Today, with the connected world in which we live and the number of people who are able to follow the issues and familiarize themselves with how the city runs and what it would take to make a contribution to help it grow, this means that the number of candidates is growing, no longer just the leaders of business, so to speak, just regular folk as well, the type that listen to just right. 
Now, how are the voters to get information on all of the candidates so that they can make rational choices, uh, not guesses? So I'd like to discuss that in two parts. First, on the voters' response, and then the uh, challenge that the media has. Having been a candidate in the past and having had the chance to meet and discuss issues with individuals, it is common knowledge that there is nothing that I like better than a discussion or a debate over my favorite topic, politics. (laughs) I get calls regularly to do just that. No subject is off limits, and I have even played, as Bob would, devil's advocate on occasion just to make the conversation flow. Now, between elections, the gamut can run from dog catcher to prime minister and anything else in the world. I personally am always trying to steer the conversation, if you can believe this, in the right direction. During elections, conversations are more specific. Right now, of course, the topic du jour is municipal. The calls that I would get uh, don't have a set format, but they are fairly similar in what they do. Caller. I'm really confused, undecided as to who to vote for. There are so many candidates and I know so little about any of them. Me. Well, go online, find the website of the candidate and read up on them. Call them up. Those who are serious will do their best with time and ability to get back to you and get your vote. Now, let me interject here, Bob. Mm -hmm. What I find more often is that uh, they're not really interested in making that kind of a commitment to get that information. What they're really looking for is someone else to do it and then tell them how to, how to, how to, what they sure, should they do. Sure, they want a referral. Exactly. Right. Okay, back to the conversation. Caller, well, who do you think's going to win? That's one of the big questions. Me. <clears throat> well, the way it looks right now, your choices are the top three as chosen by the media. Note, uh, this conversation uh, took place before the first poll and the fourth was added. Now, caller, but I don't want any one of those three. They were part of the last council mess that we had. Me. Well, then vote for someone else. Caller. The next proverbial question. Who are you supporting? I said, me. I'm working for Aaron Komplansky. It's good ideas. More importantly, he's not one of the former counselors that got us into this mess. Caller. Yeah, maybe. But he can't win. This is not the first time I've heard that line. But I am determined it'll be the last time that I hear it without responding, shall we say, sternly. During my time with the Freedom Party, uh, that is one of the most oft-heard lines for me. Not only uh, for me, but other Freedom Party candidates as well. Unfortunately, this caller was the straw that broke the camel's back. Me. (laughs) If everyone had a negative attitude like you, and will never even consider someone new, of course they won't win. But make up your mind. You were just whining about how you didn't like the fact that only former counselors are covered, and how you don't want to vote for one of them. And when I make a suggestion to vote for someone else, you give me that bloody line of, yeah, but he can't win. I'll tell you, Bob, that line drives me insane. Now, on the one hand, people complain that they they don't want the status quo but they don't want to vote for a loser. I think you had it pegged when you pointed out that no matter which candidate you support, if you don't vote for the winner, you voted for a loser. That's right. (laughs) Because only one of the candidates is going to win. So if if your concern is not wasting your vote and you want it cast for the winning candidate, make sure you know who's going to win before the election is called and vote for him. 
<laughs> Back to the caller. I wound up apologizing for uh, losing it and uh, did my best to realize that's not the best way to make a point. I, I was just frustrated by all the lack of vision and courage for something new and better. I don't know if that caller will support the same person that uh, I am, but at least we did agree that this time he will take the giant leap into the unknown. As a comedian, I remember would always say, couldn't height. <laughs> now, let me bring into this discussion um, the, yeah, you can't win, the part the media plays, and particularly as it pertains to the mayor's race. I'd be remiss if I did not point out that there are two exceptions to the limited media coverage in this town, and that's Andrew and Andy. If there are others I'm not aware of, my apologies. To say that the coverage by the free press is less than stellar would be an understatement. Early on, they had decided in their ultimate wisdom that this is a three-horse race and all the rest are not even also rands worth mentioning. Funny thing happened on the way to the election, though. They've been forced to add a fourth name. Why did they do that? Because there was a poll that showed their three favorites were not the only horses in the race. As a matter of fact, two of their candidates actually ended up below one of the previously unreported candidates. That others were in the uh, race was a fact uh, noticed by voters must have been a surprise to the free press. So, did that spur them to aggressively seek out the others and uh, that made the poll? To begin to get their opinions on the latest news? To see what their solutions are? No, not really. They simply took one more candidate's name and added it to the list. I and all Freedom Party members can speak to the phenomenon that much of the media has taken upon itself, the task of sorting out what they refer to as the fringe from the good guys to save you the bother. This is a very powerful position for the press. They are the one of the reasons you keep getting the same old winners. Kind of like Big Brother looking after you even if you don't want him to. Those voters who allow that are like sheep being led to the slaughter. But those who wish to choose for themselves are left with no help from much of the media, in particular the free press. I have always said that it is our duty to vote. But there is a caveat to that statement, and it is vote informed. If you are not willing to get at least the most basic information about candidates and what they stand for, then maybe the best thing you could do is park your vote. I understand the free press has only so much time and space to set aside for a municipal election, but would it not be better to use that space to give you some information on all the candidates rather than promote a chosen few? However, as one reporter commented, it's not the position of the media to advance the agenda of fringe candidates. They consider giving you information about all the candidates equally as advancing the agenda of the fringes. They do not see that it's newsworthy. Makes me wonder if that is the real reason or is it because they would actually have to work to get that information. So there's some questions that I'd like to ask of the free press. Who gave the free press, in particular, the right to choose those top three? I can assure you, I didn't see any questionnaires. Did you, Bob? No. Uh, with the citizens of London clamoring for change, why did the media decide that the top three are former councillors, people who were in the possibly worst council we ever had? Three, the free press has a right to an opinion. 
they can indeed choose whomever they want to support. However, they do not have a right to print those opinions as news stories. Somewhere in that report, they should have the decency to state that the following is an opinion and, uh, and, and go from there. Now, did they meet all the candidates? We don't know. Did they ask them all questions? We don't know. And uh, if they didn't do their due diligence, then what makes them any different than the people who are supporting those candidates? There's a lot, a lot of other questions that, that need to be answered from the free press, Bob, but it's like... Well, you know, I've heard the, uh, the media is always concerned about being a player in the game or being reporters. Which, do they ha which are they going to be? And if they're saying that, that uh, covering the so-called fringe candidates is equivalent to advancing their agendas, then surely covering the major candidates is equivalent to advancing their agendas, and that's what they're doing one yeah. way or the other. And so by saying that, indirectly, they said, well, we're, we're going to be biased. Yeah, and and uh, <laughs> which and, is and, fine, I, mean, <laughs> I guess, but it doesn't leave much for an informed electorate. No, and and finally, my my last line in that was maybe it's time for us to start getting our information from other communicate other forms of communication and allow the printed word to join the horseshoe and the stone tablets in the museums. <laughs> is that it? That's it for that's me it. on okay. that topic. Yes. Okay. Well, that's interesting because uh, certainly we've had Arnon Kaplansky on the show here, and it's. Believe it or not, I think it's our number two downloaded show right now as, as time has gone on since that show was actually first broadcast. So clearly a lot of people are interested yep. in an alternative. We're going to take a quick break right now, and when we come back, we're going to get into some municipal fallacies that we seem to be living with during this election, everything from the ombudsman to the, to the whole Kings Mills deal and to the Downtown Merchants Association. We'll be back right after this. God, that took us forever. What is this place? Wait, there he is. Oh, uh, Mr. Mayor. Hi. Mr. Mayor. Everyone's looking for you. The whole city. Fred. That's not the mayor. Take the glasses off, bitch. Oh, sorry, sir. Oh, here. Mr. Mayor? Oh. Carrie. Sorry, ma'am. Must have left already or something. Yeah. Uh, can I get a milkshake, please? No way. That's the mayor. He's playing bass. He's in a reggae band. I feel a little weird saying this, but I like this. Why? I, I love this. And he's not like trying to like overshadow the rest of the band. Like he's like laying it down. No, he's laying back. I mean, yeah. a, a good bass player kind of lays back a little bit. Yeah, it's totally yeah. Doing Except that. for like Minutemen and those bands where like they play high in the neck. You sound good. We've been looking for you. We like how you play. Uh, how's that milkshake coming, friend? Not too cold on that, right? What is it that you call the mayor? Is it sir? Or maybe it's just laid back and it's just like, hey man, you know, because he seems so cool. Right. Oh. Whoa! Jesus. That's like totally Fred and Carrie, the mayor will see you now. So, 
psyched to meet you. You're like the coolest man we've ever had. Awesome. Yes. Thanks so much. You're so yeah. cool. Office is so cool. Mm. Mm. It's awesome. What are the awards you have? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is uh, this is the latest one we just got. Best official website for cities with populations under 700,000 in the Pacific Northwest area. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. Well, I had this one made and I presented it to myself. Oh, you had it made? Yeah. You know, it's the best site out there anyway, right? Seattle's is the worst. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It's got too many links. Oh, yeah, you don't want that. Bianca tells me you have an idea. All right, so we have this idea. Yeah. Uh, we're sort of former musicians, like we've been in bands and stuff, and mm -hmm. so we thought, like, if we had a city holiday mm -hmm. for Portland, mm -hmm. and it's bring your guitar to school or work day. Mm -hmm. uh, wait, wait, you just said that you're musicians, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've got a little project that I'm working on. It's really dear to my heart. I need to come up with a new theme song for a new ad campaign for Portland. This is where my head is right now. What do you guys think? You're musicians? You said you write music? I think you might be perfect for this. To, to write it. Yeah. yeah, I want it to be about Portland. You know, I mean, all about the inspiration that you get from the city. Bridges, mountains, rivers, uh, All nature. of that, all of that. Bicycles, all of that. All of that fits yeah. in. One word of warning, please don't make it like Seattle. The Space Needle, ooh, like we've never seen that before. You got it. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, this is so good. I'm so glad you came yeah, in today. This are. is just perfect. You just made me the happiest mayor oh, so in the country. Happy. We work Sites. for you. Good, I'm gonna work on my core. Oh, <laughs> that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah, that's All right, so good. Nice it's to so great to meet you. You're so yeah. cool. Right. Oh, guys. <laughs> that's from the show, by the way, Portlandia, which I just discovered in the past week, thanks to a <laughs> referral from a friend. And boy, talk about a, a, a funny show. And so much of the civic politics is on that superficial level that we hear so much about in our own politics here. And speaking of which, I guess I'm getting back to the I told you so department, when on past shows I have insisted that the ombudsman and his report on whether city municipal councillors could meet at Billy T's and all that stuff, I said he has no authority in it, there's no issue there, and there's nothing wrong with it. And sure enough, finally someone else has come out to support my point of view on that. I, I recall on August 27th, CJBK fill-in host Joe Duchesne interviewed UWO professor Andrew Sancton, professor of political science here at the university. And he said to uh, Joe that morning, he says, and I quote, <clears throat> in my paper, I pointed out that the ombudsman made up his definition of a meeting in a number of his investigation, including at Billy T's. And I just thought it was time to call him on it. That's exactly what I was saying earlier. To say, look, here's the background of all this. He doesn't have a legal leg to stand on, and someone's got to call him on it. If six or seven councillors are getting together to talk about municipal business, is that a meeting of a council? I don't think so. That's a meeting of a few people to talk about municipal business. What the ombudsman is saying is that even if there is not a quorum, councillors talking business among themselves are likely violating the Municipal Act, and I just think that makes it impossible for them to do their job. And why should municipal politicians be under those restrictions while federal and provincial politicians aren't under those restrictions at all, he asks. And then they got into a discussion of municipal parties and all this type of thing. Free Press covered the same issue in their t September 20th edition, um, provincial probe London academic questions rationale for Andre Mar Mar Marin's investigation of seven city councillors 
And Marin, of course, replied in that arg article saying, calling that a broad and generous interpretation of the law, Marin said it fits with the modern world where citizens demand more openness and information from politicians, particularly at the local level. I think it's great that we're having this conversation, he said, of Sanctum's criticism. Let's talk about whether you should be running a municipal council in 2013 like it's the 1950s. Embrace the openness, embrace the debate, and what he's really saying is embrace the complete anarchy of what has become City Hall, because the, the rules are just falling by the wayside, and they're making them up as they go along, as they need to create a, uh, an objective, they create a rule for it, you know, and, and then there's no rules in advance. So, in any case, you know, this is just one part of the, the, the picture that we have here in the city. And I'm just glad that I'm not the only one sitting out there saying that, look, at Marin hasn't got a, a single legal leg to stand on. He made up his definitions. And by the way, even if there is a quorum of municipal councillors, it's, it's not a meeting until the recording secretary is there, until the city administration is there, until the minutes are taken, it's recorded yep. in the minutes. So you could have five quorums. It wouldn't make any difference. They can all talk amongst themselves. And there's nothing wrong with Joni Beckler going ahead and endorsing candidates if she wants. I think it's, I wouldn't go along with any candidate she endorsed because I see her as a crony politician, although people seem to love her for some reason. And, uh, you know, it's just a disaster, I think, what's been going on. And, and, and mostly I want to start by talking about the Kings Mill Fanshawe scandal, as I would call it. You know, Robert Vaughn said an interesting thing to me. You know, there was a vote taken to defeat the extra $10 million that was going to go towards the uh, fan shop purchase of Kings Mill building downtown for the relocation, and it was defeated 7 to 7. And yet the conversation continued after that vote as if no vote had been taken. They just carried on. And, you know, Robert pointed out, he says, even under Robert's rules, you can't reopen an issue for at least 12 months on a reopen motion unless two-thirds of those who voted against it agree. And... That is true, and the, apparently there's a similar law in the municipal, municipal council, but there was a way of getting around it, and that was to change the motion mm -hmm. on a small technicality, which I think destroyed the intent of the original motion. I think there's a lot of legal possibility here for some big lawsuits coming down the road. But BIA's Jeanette McDonald intervened and said the Downtown Merchants Association would contribute $1 million dollars. And uh, we'll be getting into more of this a little bit later on in the show, on the other side of the next break. I consider this a completely illegal and illegitimate expenditure of BIA funds, which we'll discuss later. And I'm just wondering where the ombudsman is on this one. Meanwhile, on the other side of the city, Denise Brown meets with Fanshawe College president, who happens to be a beneficiary of the $10 million. Denise Brown being a city councillor, for those unfamiliar with the city here. And she's going to him, a beneficiary of this $10 million for input, to decide whether this is a wise thing to do or not. Now, I didn't hear that she went to take the same time to interview someone on the other side of this issue for their input, mm -hmm. right? And she certainly didn't talk to the people she supposedly represents, because I don't talk to too many people that are into spending more money on this kind of thing. And again, here's another case that I think the ombudsman would have grounds to check out. This seems to be a tremendous conflict of interest going on at, at, a, at a very inappropriate level. That's just how I'm seeing it. But thanks to the outrageous maneuver of Jeanette McDonald of the London Downtown BIA, the motion was reintroduced. 
with the $10 million changed to $9 million because Jeanette MacDonald offered a million dollars to the project through the BIA. And this is a way of getting around the defeated motion of a week earlier. The spirit of the earlier motion was quashed on a technicality. Because the original debate was not about whether we should pay $10 million or $9 million, but over whether Fanshawe should get any extra money after having already gotten $20 million before from taxpayers. Again, I'm asking, where is that ombudsman now? <laughs> right? He's not there for anything that has any substance, right, Al? <laughs> this is the kind of thing that ombudsmen should be investigating, though I'm not advocating it. Please don't think that that's what I'm doing. And, of course, the whole thing was brought through in a last-minute crisis decision. The vote was rushed through to beat the lame duck council phenomenon that prevents municipal councils from making decisions like this as they go into an election. Yet, let's not forget... The official election period began on January 1st. On January 1st, people can start filing right up to, I guess, just a couple weeks ago, uh, whether or not they'll run. It seems to me that should be a lame duck council period, that whole period. If you're going to have the election period run that long, then that whole period should be off limits for huge expenditures. And uh, so shouldn't the lame duck status kick in then? seems to me all decisions like this should have been made last year. And again, there's another principle at stake, the narrow vote principle. Spending amounts like 10 to $30 million on a single non-municipal project should, like a constitutional amendment, or say a vote for separation, such as Scotland's going through today, should require far more, I think, than a 50% plus one vote. Don't you think, Al? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it just, it, it's bizarre to me. And... You know, everybody was saying that we need details about the proposed arts center and the Fanshawe College expansion. You know, it wouldn't matter to me the slightest if the detail of any proposal could convince me that we're talking about a guaranteed return of 20% on investment. Because if that were so, government involvement wouldn't be needed, which is why such talk is a fantasy. The problem with all the talk of investments and paybacks in the field of politics is the great unspoken truth. The investors are not the same people as those getting the payback. Yes. It's a wealth transfer scheme. But even if it could be demonstrated that my taxes would actually be lowered or kept the same when the so-called payback shows its face, I would still be against the expenditure since it's not a legitimate municipal jurisdiction. And once you cross that line, then anything goes. You have no more legs to stand on with respect to the objective operation of the city's basic essential services. And, you know, even when you speak in nebulous collectivist terms like simply saying that the city will benefit from some political action, that destroys anyone's understanding of the true issue. Who exactly benefits? Politicians and the targeted interests of their spending. Who exactly pays? Taxpayers who are desperately trying to hang on to their homes and businesses. I think we crossed that line a long time ago. Uh, oh, absolutely. <laughs> and so, you know, what are the measurable terms in which any such cost or benefit to the city are actually relevant to the individuals and businesses living in that city? These can be two entirely different and conflicting measurements or criteria for success, as we keep hearing, for example, about the John Labatt Center. You know, you, you hear that about, about them all the time. And I think the one of the most frightening things that we keep hearing from politicians promoting projects like the Fanshawe College relocation or other entertainment center venues is that London's Budweiser Gardens is a shining example of how to do it right. Touted as a success, the former John Labatt Center, now the Budweiser Gardens, is not a success for London taxpayers. 
nor is it a success for bringing money into the city because it actually does the opposite, which people just don't get their heads around. But don't take it from me. As we go into our next break, let's listen into a clip from a previous broadcast of our own show here, just right, number 274, which you can listen to its entirety, uh, originally aired November 1, 2012, during which the former Board of Control member and Deputy Mayor of London, Orlando Zampronia, appeared as our guest with Robert Vaughn and myself here in the studio. On that show, Orlando made it quite clear that a proper municipal government in London should result not only in 0% tax increases, but tax decreases. And in explaining how municipal finances have gotten so much out of whack, causing high taxes, well, the subject of the JLC Budweiser couldn't be avoided. Let's, lis- let's listen in, and we'll be back right after this. I mean, a long, long, long time ago, it was all based on, on uh, fee-for-service. And then governments came along and decided that money should be spread and uh, people should pay the same. In other words, the uh, the level of socialism grew. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and now it's grown to the point where everybody has to pay for everything. And then the, probably this is a, a, would be a good time to start asking, well, am I really using it? Uh, people are not using the, uh, the uh, what used to be the John Labatt Center, yet they're paying huge sums of money to support the borrowings that went on for that. I'm glad you brought that up because that's been a craw on my side for years and I keep hearing, I've even heard uh, talk show hosts and others saying, oh, it's been a success. It's bringing in the big acts, it's bringing in a lot of money and it's making a profit, which is now called the Budweiser Gardens. You would think that that's not the case. Is that right? I get angry, literally angry, when I hear people talk like that. Yes, it is a nice thing to have. Yes, it brings nice acts. Yes, it gives a certain level of vitality, and I'm all for it. But eventually, you have to ask yourself the question, who pays? And where does the money go? Consider two things. The first is that the uh, the deal that was struck with the present uh, organizers or managers of it allows them to pay uh, based on net profits. Well, you know, that means that they can write off just about everything. Secondly, the city paid for the building and the land, and the taxpayer has been paying something like $2.5 million a year in taxes uh, to cover for that and getting about, what, 150000 200000 back. Big deal, excuse me. Thirdly, because the, the city leased the land in which the building is built, they pay no tax. I don't think people know that. The city used to at least used to earn $300,000 a year from parking revenue on that lot. Mm-hmm. They don't even earn that anymore. That's the first thing that's wrong. The second thing that's wrong is a lot of politicians get screaming mad about uh, casinos because they're a drain on the public purse. They, they suck up money from the local economy and it goes to the province. But at least some of that comes back in the form of hospital support and so on and so forth. Consider that the Budweiser Center probably earns in the range of, say, 40 to $60 million a year from acts. Now, most of those acts, by far the majority, are from outside of Canada. Mm-hmm. That money is now sucked out of the local economy, most of it, and goes to the United States. You ever think of that? Imagine a system here that is nothing but a pipeline that is almost like cross-border shopping in reverse. Now, the Budweiser Gardens is one example of a big mega-project which is not necessarily uh, something that every Londoner benefits from. You have 
those kinds of things. You have convention center, you have museums, uh, uh, things like that. Big mega projects. Um, they're thinking now of having a, a performing arts center, and that's going to come down the pipe very soon, and I bet you we're probably going to get that too. What is the proper function of a municipal government? Is it to provide these kinds of circuses, or is it to provide fundamentals like sewers, uh, water, roads? Yeah, it almost seems like the city's turned into an entertainment center more than a well, basic services center. You really have to look back about 2,000 years and, <laughs> and find out that the Romans were in the same problem. Were you, were you on the council then? <laughs> Probably. I've been around long enough and I've read enough about it. I want to thank you for coming today on this cloudy Portland afternoon. It's, um, it's been a difficult time for my family and for me. First and foremost, I want to say, yes, I was playing bass in a dub reggae band called King Desmond and the Accelerators. A reggae band? Yes. Floyd, Gerald, Brian, Willie? Reggae. That's a dirty secret in some yeah, ways. Yeah. And he just, he went ahead and just came right out. Yeah. What part do you play, Mr. Mayor? Do you play an instrument? Are you a singer? What do you do? Yeah, I sit in as a bass player. What kind of bass do you have? I had a Rickenbacker 4003 that was just killer. Uh, but right now, no, I'm, I'm playing uh, classic the Fender Precision. Those have a great low end. Unbelievable. Who are your influences? Jeez, I mean, Augustus Pablo for me is like, <laughs> he's king, you know. Wow, he's into some uh, root like stuff, huh? I can't believe his wife's so supportive. Now, excuse me, Mr. Mayor, would you say this is dance hall or real roots reggae? This is real roots reggae. We don't mess around. Cool. Once you go dub, you never go back. You know what I'm saying? Mr. Sir, with all due respect, would you consider yourself a skipper or a rude boy? Well, you know, if you can open up your heart and you can feel the sun and you can feel the music, all is good and all is forgiven. I'm Mr. sorry, what? What? It's a new lyric that I've been working on with the band, and I'm... Uh, and it's... Um, it's, uh, sorry about that. We'll wait. That's funny stuff. Um, you know, by the way, I'm a big fan of Roots Reggae myself. Don't mind at all. Big Bob Marley fan. You know, he was the king of reggae as far as I'm concerned. But again, just funny how superficial stuff gets into that whole whole mix with the mayor of Portlandia and how, how, how very real it is in, in, in a... In a in a what's, what's that called? Um, it's a, in a farcical sense, mm. you know? Uh, but in any case, I wanted to carry on with, with what has happened with Jeanette McDonald and the downtown uh, so-called Merchants Association, which it is not. It's not a Merchants Association in the sense of what people think a Merchants Association would be. It's just a tax-paying group that has no vote, no, no say on anything. It's just that's what it is. And I heard a very revealing interview in the middle of August on the 13th of August with uh, Steve Garrison on CJBK who was interviewing uh, Jeanette McDonald, executive director of downtown London, which is the BIA, on their, their planned expansion of the BIA into the Richmond Row area. And she told Garrison that Richmond Row had asked the downtown BIA to expand its boundaries to include Richmond Row. She told him that on that date the BIA had done all its quote due diligence and the letters have gone out and went on to say that it's an opportunity for the BIA to demonstrate to Richmond Row merchants and building owners exactly what the BIA does for them, the programs they offer, the results they have, the kind of money it's going to cost them. 
And so Garrison asked, what does the Richmond Row Association bring to her table? And she says, well, they give us a larger area to work with. From a marketing perspective, it gives us more residents, more businesses, a larger area when we're trying to track, say, a national retailer or an investor from out of town. Although, the, although these places are already in existence, the fact that they weren't within our boundaries, we couldn't really speak to what was there. And then how does the BIO, BIA help Richmond Row? She says, well, they've already been working very hard, but it's difficult to work in an area and promote the business at the same time. We'll allow them to work in their businesses while we promote the area. Notice that term, we promote the area. That is the official reason it'll be, BIAs exist, is for advertising. Yes. End of story. And he said, is it a takeover, a merger, a partnership? And she says, none of the above. We really didn't initiate this. We were, you know, quite happy with our boundaries. The Richmond Row folks have been trying to organize a BIA for a really long time, and it's never really come to fruition. That tells me there's big trouble there. <laughs> it's been very difficult, so they asked us to extend our boundaries so we could include them. For us, it will be business as usual, but with a larger larger series of stakeholders. Notice she says stakeholders and not members or mem association members because they're not members of anything. They're just Businesses. taxpayers. <laughs> they're just taxpayers. And she says the two groups will be one group from here on in. We'll be downtown London. Richmond Row will retain its identity, of course, but will, we, will be represented across the entire area with a new board in January because of an election. Now, what she's calling an election is not what you and I would call an election, but that's another story. Then he asks, where does the money come from to support the organization? She says, the money comes from the very people we're representing. And she's not representing anyone. That's what I don't get. She's collecting taxes from a business group. She's simply she, advertising. Yeah, but she's not representing them. She says, it's a levy imposed on the building owners within the boundary. Now, when I used to fight BIAs, and this was the first one we tried to beat, the only one we didn't, Mark Emery and myself, but f between us and Freedom Party, we defeated dozens of these things across the province because you have to catch them in their formation stages. It's the only time you can really stop them without going through a horrible uh, process that's really hard to get around. But in any case, she says, uh, you know, the Richmond Road doesn't have a levy now because they're not governed under the Municipal Act. Well, that tells me that it's not just a merchants association. It's obviously got something to do with taxes. And yes, they will be levied in the future. And that's the problem here. You know, um, they're going to... B people do not, don't understand. BIAs like, are like a union for businesses, except that they aren't members and can't get to vote on anything. The only thing they share in common is that they are the tax base from which the so-called merchant association confiscates its funding via a levy. The so-called membership is effectively conscripted by a means of the very process that Jeanette McDonald described as a vote. What she calls a voting process is, in fact, a negative democratic billing process. Remember negative billing? except what's being billed as a misrepresentation of a democratic process. You can't just say no thanks if you get one of these letters from the BIA. You have to petition a large majority of all the other building owners who are also getting a letter. So the first thing you have to find out is who's getting a letter, who's included in the group. It's not like you can opt in or out as an individual. And I don't even know if it's businesses as such anymore because I don't know if they have any status in the BIA anymore because now they tax the real estate owner, the property owner, when in fact it's supposed to be a business tax promoting the business tenants of the thing. But now the owner has to pay it. 
And so the thing has morphed into a horrible monster since the days it first came into being when I was talking about it. And that's the vote that McDonald's talking about. She's talking about this thing, If and that's what Mark and I used to do. We used to have to go around, and most of the owners, incidentally, are in Toronto. Yes. Especially, mm-hmm. And so try locating them, and then try explaining to them what a BIA is, because it's being so misrepresented to them. And, you know, it's just like any other communist, fascist, so-called democratic process. One person, one vote, one time, and then you're done. No more voting. That's it. And then there's no way out without huge problems. Business going bad, losing money instead of making it, doesn't matter. You still have to pay your merchant association dues. You just can't say, sorry, we can't afford our association dues this year, because it's a tax, just like every other tax. And when a relationship isn't voluntary, to call it an association is just adding insult to injury. And the justification for all of this, think about it. The very notion of selling a bigger BIA as a benefit is outrageous. The purpose of any legitimate business association is to promote its interests as opposed to those with whom they compete, other businesses, right? (laughs) The larger the so-called the association, the less representative it is for the specific area that it's supposed to be promoting, BIA, Business Improvement Area, right? And the more damaging the efforts of the BIA will be to the interests of its members. I mean, if bigger is better, then why not conscript all London businesses into a London association and promote them all at the same time? You can see how ridiculous that sounds on the face of it. Well, that's how ridiculous BIAs are on the face of it. After all, you'd have a much larger budget. You could have a much better job representing London businesses that they could do it themselves with their puny budgets and limited time. That's how they push it, right? And right now, Richmond Row merchants compete with downtown London. After being drafted, they still will, even though their dues now will go towards helping promote their competitors, right? <laughs> That's what they're doing. And in the middle of this nightmarish business scam sits the BIA, a creature of provincial statute that can only be meaningfully, meaningfully fought at the provincial level, and which is also the reason why I'm so familiar with BIAs. Like the Budweiser Garden's success, which drains millions of dollars out of the city, as explained by Orlando Zampronia a moment ago, so too do BIAs act as a parasite, draining the lifeblood of its victims. Then, to add insult to injury, Jeanette McDonald offers to give Kings Mills Fanshawe College deal $1 million over 10 years at taxpayer expense, the taxpayers being those paying the tax to the BIA for purposes unrelated to representation, but supposed to be for advertising, not for fixing up buildings, but is now becoming an active player with its own interests. That's what the BIA is using the extorted money from people with many varying and differing interests. In fact, Jeanette McDonald was on record in both the free press and on the radio saying they want Kings Mills downtown, they being the BIA. Yes. Although she, she, she can ostensibly say, well, we're representing the merchants, which is a big, fat lie. You can say you're representing the merchants once they can vote for you or vote against you. Okay, but until you until that happens, sounds like the Arab Spring. And if all the BIA can offer to its so-called existing members is promotion and advertising, then it has no reason to exist because every business offering a similar service competes with the next, even if they're in the same district. And so to pretend that government-paid bureaucrats can do the job of promotion any better than apparently Richmond Rose Private Association already has, boy, you've got to be in serious denial to even go there. So. Again, what a fraud this whole situation is with the King's Mills deal. If somebody gets on top of this, I can't see them losing this one if they took it to court over the BIA's promise. They just effectively put the merchants downtown on the hook for a million dollars over a 10-year period, which is effectively a loan. They're not allowed to borrow money. 
And by the way, they don't have much money to begin with. They're, they seem to be running on a deficit from what I heard. So here you go. Uh, another government scam just sucking millions out of downtown. And if you go shopping downtown, part of the price of what you're paying goes towards that BIA. And that's all I've got to say on that issue for now, because now for something completely different, that's just the same. We move from the irrelevancy of BIAs to the irrelevancy of a political sacred cow, the United Nations. What you're about to hear on this side of the bumper is a fellow named uh, G. Edward Griffin, is that right, Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, which was posted to YouTube on October 30th, 2011, and on the other side of the bumper, as we return to our discussion, we'll be hearing part of an April 24th, 2009 debate hosted by the Hudson Union Society on the irrelevance of the United Nations. And on that topic, we'll be back in five. Well, the United Nations is different things to different people. Most people think that the UN is our last best hope for peace. That's the way it was uh, sold to me when I was in school. Uh, It was uh, offered as an organization uh, where different nations could come together and work out their problems and their grievances in a peaceful manner and um, be a means of uh, reducing world conflict and increasing the economic prosperity of all of the member nations and all of these wonderful things. In reality, it turns out to be none of the above. In reality, the United Nations is a, a the seat of what the member governments hope will become a true world government. It's to be a government. And there's nothing inherently wrong with a world government, but we need to ask the question, what kind of a world government is this going to be. If the United Nations were going to be a government based on all of the things they've said it was going to be, peace and prosperity and protecting individual rights and all of these things, I think it'd be pretty hard to oppose it. But in reality, it's being built as a model of collectivism. The political ideology that is inherent in the United Nations is collectivism. It's a word that probably needs to be defined for our purposes here. But in general, it means a totalitarian system, a system of uh, concentration at the top and the people being at the bottom being ruled from above. Not that the people have any voice in determining the direction of their government or the world, but they are to be told what the direction is and they're to be told to follow it. Collectivism is a philosophy of big government and small people. And it's a philosophy that supposedly uh, all of this is being done in the name of society. In other words, it's for the greater good of the greater number, supposedly. And so you're supposed to go along with whatever inconvenience or uh, insult to your freedom comes along. Because after all, it's in the greater good uh, of the greater number. And this is the, the rationale being used, has been used for quite some time, to justify all kinds of horrible atrocities. All the leaders have to do is say, well, it's for the greater good of the greater number. That's the philosophy that's built into the United Nations from top to bottom. So therefore, the answer to the question, what is the United Nations? The United Nations is a budding or building world totalitarian system.
Americans, and I imagine most of you here are, most Americans believe that the UN is irrelevant. For most Americans, the UN is essentially some sort of nebulous concept run by some guys with uh, unpronounceable names that are instantly forgettable. For most New Yorkers, let's face it, what do we know about the UN? What do we care about the UN? It's an ugly building on the east side of Manhattan with no air conditioning and responsible for $80 million in unpaid parking tickets. <laughs> now, if we look at what this UN is supposedly responsible for, let's look, the most obvious thing, right, is the whole Russia-Georgia conflict. Where has the UN been here? Okay, in what is perhaps one of the most outrageous land grabs and territorial violations of the sovereignty of the country in recent times, the UN has been totally silent. And why? Guess what? Russia's on the Security Council. Try to get a resolution through that one. What has the EU's response been? The EU's response has been, well, we had a meeting. We got together. We said that is absolutely disgraceful what they did. <laughs> Please don't do it again. <laughs> you'll have your chance to say, please don't do it again. And then they scratch their heads and said, you know what we'll do? We'll try and restrict the visas, perhaps, for Russian officials, Russian business people coming into the EU. They didn't pass on that one. What did the US do? Now, I know a lot of you guys don't like Dick Cheney, got a little bad press and everything, but the US sent a US Navy warship into the port of Porty uh, with humanitarian aid, plus a check for $1 billion. Now, I find it ironic that the, uh, these guys over here talk about you know, the aid given through the UN and that the UN at least have a, has an aid role. But even here we've seen the UN, first of all, can't deliver the aid. Two, they don't have any aid to deliver. Um, it was asked in an earlier uh, segment, uh, what's the proper function of government? In this segment, I'm mm -hmm. basically asking the same thing about the United Nations. Now, your astute listeners will undoubtedly have noticed that that clip, uh, they were discussing Russia invading Georgia, not the Ukraine. Well, this, as you mentioned, was taped five years ago, and I wanted to play it to show how the UN has not advanced at all. Back then, the solution was to cancel visas. Well, yeah. <laughs> it worked so well, Russia got what it wanted, and uh, no war was started, so they decided to use that as a template, and we can see it at in effect in Ukraine this year. And that's the kind of logic and solutions that the UN is using everywhere. And that's why the chaos has erupted virtually around the globe, proving beyond the shadow of a doubt that the United Nations has degenerated from a world representative organization conceived for the good of mankind into a maniacal, self-promoting, self-fulfilling, self-collection, of bureaucratic nightmares. Yeah, just like the BIA. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing the UN learned from the League of Nations, the body they replaced, was not to make the same mistakes they, the League, made. Mistakes not as far as the betterment of mankind, au contraire, but for the UN's own longevity. This is what they corrected and why. They have gone from the role of a arm's-length peacekeeper and the buffer between world governments into one of the most powerful governments on the planet. The reason, and this is the why, if you are not the driving force in the world, you will be driven out. For example, currently the idea that is pushing the world into creative chaos is global warming. And who is the driving force behind this greatest fallacy to be inflicted on mankind? United Nations International 
talent panel on climate change. Mm-hmm. One of a plethora of bodies that they have created to give themselves legitimacy. And most people think they're talking about the weather when they're really talking about political climate. That's correct. That's what they're trying to change. <laughs> <laughs> now, remember, if you're not the driving force, well, so here's another insane power drive. The UN convinced world governments that it would help reduce the perceived evil of greenhouse gas if they created cleaner burning fuels, biofuels, to add to gas and diesel. Now, the idea seems reasonable, maybe even good, but watch what happened when the UN unleashed it. These biofuels were made from renewable sources, crops. They were not specifically grown for biofuels. They were already being produced crops, like corn, wheat, Soy, rapeseed, sugar beets, etc. Once they began diverting them to fuel, there was suddenly a short supply on the food market. And that drove up the cost so many people could no longer afford to buy the food they needed. Now, I remember that. It also crossed my mind, uh, beings were discussing the UN, that this was, well, maybe a planned consequence with overpopulation causing havoc. Maybe the solution is starving the problem, so to speak. Government and social engineering plans are never a good combination, and that is why, uh, that's what brings me to why I chose the discussion today on the UN. It was the most recent proposal from the most revered organization in the world, at least in some people's eyes, obviously not in mine. The United Nations, in its ultimate wisdom, has decided to tackle the world-threatening epidemic of, are you ready for this? I'm ready. Electronic cigarettes. Oh, yeah. Yes, you heard me right. Mm -hmm. The no less than august body than the United Nations is going to tackle the creeping threat of e-cigarettes. Well, because it's killed. Well, they don't actually know how many it's killed. Or even if it's (laughs) killed anybody... Because there's never any real studies done, not even any fake studies to create straw men like they do for global warming. Now, when I saw that headline, my first thought was, this has to be a story from one of those Onion sites, you know, the parody people. But no, I'm watching Sun News, and there's Brian Lilly discussing the topic. The UN is going to spend millions, maybe even billions. It could be done cheaper, but this, of course, is the UN, and your money is unlimited. They will create a new council and select a new rapporteur, is that saying it right, to monitor this threat to humanity and the world. I don't think even your favorite Monty Python in their heyday could have come up with this piece of insanity, even in their now for something completely different segment. (laughs) This was, at least for me, uh, this turned a thought that I'd had for some time into a belief that the UN has passed its best before date and failed the smell test at the same time. Now, some might say, hey, wait a minute. There's nothing wrong with the UN looking into this topic. Well, even if we lived in a utopian society, which we don't, that is not what the UN was created for. It was created to help keep world peace, not run your bloody life. Besides, we already have Mama Wynne to do that. Now, can anyone make a link to world peace and e-cigarettes and why they'd be highlighting this issue? Can't make that link to peace, but I can make an educated guess. If you're thinking and discussing e-cigarettes, you're not talking about how the UN is failing the rest of the world. Now, 
Let's look at the mandate and what is going on in the world today and what the UN is doing. And if time permits, okay, uh, we'll get into some rotten stuff. Well, here's we're, a condensed... We're, we're in, in the near the end of the clock there. Okay, close, here's the condensed version. Here's a <laughs> in-depth look at uh, one of the committees, okay? Here's mm-hmm. it goes. Although most people associate the United Nations with issues of peace and security, the vast majority of organizations' resources are in fact devoted to advancing the Charter's pledge to promote, here we go, higher standards of living, full employment, and conditions of economic and social progress and development. United Nations development efforts have profoundly affected the lives and the well-being of millions of people throughout the world. Guiding the United Nations endeavors is the conviction that lasting international peace and security are possible only if the economic and social well-being of people everywhere is assured. These are not the goals of a body to maintain world peace. This is like the manifesto of a group wishing to govern the entire world. That's exactly right. And um, is that it? Uh, uh, we yeah. could, uh, well, I know we could go on for another yeah, show. Yeah, we, we could definitely do that. Well, I certainly agree, Al. As a peacekeeping instrument, the UN is irrelevant. As an instrument of political conflict, it is very relevant because collectivism is, after all, the root of all conflict and war. There are no other real, real roots to those problems, and the UN sits at the center of it. Just as we sit at the center of this show here, we've got to wrap up for another week. So we'll be leaving you for another week, and we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Next week, join us again as we, until until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. I will. I'll try to be. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the bedclothes, everything will be Oh, everything going so wonderful for me. I have no friend, place to live. Oh, Sergei, I have to talk to you about that. You see, Mindy says we only have room enough for two, and we have to find you a place of your own. My own? You mean I can live alone if I want to? Sure, why not? Well, where I come from, no one lives alone. Sharing a room with 60 people is solitary confinement. <laughs> Must be a long line for the shower. Shower? Oh, so many things to learn. So many new experiences for me. Disco dancing, dirt bikes, a burrito.